This is the 12th or 13th iteration of a tour that started this past summer. And I've named the tour Race and Place. And the tour comes from the place where, um, obviously, we've been talking about race in Charlottesville in really sort of acute ways over the last 18 months. Uh, and I came quickly to realize that uh, many of my white Christian uh, friends were largely unaware of the history of racism and how it actually has profoundly shaped the city of Charlottesville over the last 200 years. And so it's not that many of my um, uh, uh, white friends were, uh, you know, sort of rejected certain dimensions of history. They just really were unaware. There was just a, a, a lack of knowledge. Uh, and so uh, that, uh, those conversations were, for me, uh, enlightening and sort of frustrating. And I came to the place that uh, I also... Um, believe that as Christians, it's really essential that we're always speaking the truth. If we, in fact, want to be a people of the truth, we have to be able to speak the truth. And if we're going to move ever towards reconciliation, truth-telling must be part of our DNA. And uh, when Jesus was asked, uh, what are the most important commandments? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it. Love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And we cannot possibly love our neighbor if we don't know our neighbor or know our neighbor's story. And so this is storytelling, but it's storytelling with a very clear purpose. And that is that we might better love our neighbor. The history of race in Charlottesville can only begin, really, with the West African slave trade. And so we're going to start there. My research work over the last uh, four or five years has spent a great deal more time thinking about the um, interrelationships between the coastal Americas uh, and the West, Af and West African slave trade. I've been doing field work in Ghana and in Senegal, and I hope to expand that ultimately uh, to Benin and Nigeria as I'm better understanding the spaces of exportation uh, for the West African slave trade, which we're not going to talk about now, uh, except to say that we have to understand that when we're talking about race in Charlottesville, that's in the larger context of the extraction of approximately 12 million people from West Africa and from Central Africa over the course of three centuries. That's a profound dislocation. And that number, 12 million people, slightly disputed, some say 11, some say 12 and a half, doesn't matter, it's a huge number. That dislocation does not include the huge but undocumented number of enslaved people who never left the West African coast. That's simply the number that boarded ships. And of course, we know the death rate on the Middle Passage uh, is significant. Um, so we're talking about a massive global relocation, forcible relocation, the profound restructuring of politics, places, and cultures in Africa. Uh, by the time we get to the 18th century, here in Virginia, uh, and the decades just prior to the construction of the UNESCO World Heritage Site behind me, uh, it's important for us to recognize that Virginia has a 50% enslaved population, right? So 50% of the people here in Albemarle County are enslaved Africans and African Americans. Right? Uh, so this is not a minority uh, community. There's this very, very tiny uh, market town called Charlottesville. But 
Albemarle County, as many of the other counties around it, are populated almost exclusively with plantations. Those plantations are founded as tobacco plantations, but they transition to wheat in the very closing decade or so of the 18th century. Thomas Jefferson is one of the early adopters of this transition for wheat, transition to wheat. Uh, that is in some ways tied to the rise of the Napoleonic Wars um, uh, in Europe, which are devastating the breadbasket of, uh, of Europe. And so there's just an, there's a global market shift and uh, there's a transition to wheat. Uh, what's important for us to recognize in the middle of that, though, is that tobacco is a labor-intensive crop. Right? You must have a huge investment in labor to manage tobacco. Wheat is not a labor-intensive crop. Okay? And so in this late 18th, early 19th century period, you actually have a, d a decreasing demand on labor. Put that together with the fact that between 1807 and 1809, we see the termination of the legal West African slave trade. The British Navy becomes um, the, the policing agent uh, working to terminate the West African slave trade. So we have a number of economic factors that are all at play in this um, uh, very, the first decade of the early, uh, early 19th century. Right? Those factors are a decreasing demand for labor and the termination of labor uh, of, a supply, of a supply chain. Right? This labor supply chain is uh, um, uh, terminated. Uh, 1794, Eli Whitney invents what? Cotton gin. We all know that. We learned that in high school, right? We cannot underestimate the profound impact that that one invention has. Cotton has been around as a cultivated cop, crop for about a century, but the introduction of the cotton gin means that all of a sudden the processing of cotton becomes significantly easier, and you see the rapid expanse of the planting of cotton in what's called the Deep South, right? So in the 18th century, the South is largely coastal. Early 19th century, we have the introduction of the cotton gin, the massive expansion of cotton plantation, and the territorial expansion through the Deep South, right? So think about all of those factors simultaneously at play in, in one moment, and that is we have a massive demand for labor in the Deep South, the termination of a labor supply in West Africa, and the transition of a crop in Virginia from a high-demand crop to a low-demand crop. Put all that together and tell me what happens. Massive relocation of enslaved people from Virginia to the Deep South. The second slave trade. Right? We often talk about the Middle Passage as the slave trade, and that's absolutely true. But Charlottesville's story with the slave trade is its critical participation in the second slave trade. That one million or so people that are, over the course of a half century, forcibly relocated again from the Upper South to the Lower South, right? And that story implicates Washington, D.C., Alexandria, Richmond, Charlottesville, and other locations. And so when we're talking about the slave trade in Virginia, and we're talking about slavery and slavery's historical uh, uh, location and the dislocations of, of slavery, we have to recognize that it's actually an out-migration. It's not an immigration. okay? So with that... Um, in the middle of all of that, of course, we have the American Revolution. Thomas Jefferson plays a critical role working with uh, um, uh, James Madison on the, uh, the draft of the Constitution, uh, Declaration of Independence, all of these other documents uh, that are so essential to the founding of the new nation. Uh, those documents declare the centrality of human freedom and liberty and, a dem and democratic processes. 
while simultaneously never dealing with the cancer within, which is the institution of slavery. Right? The failure of our founding fathers to properly grapple with and resolve the institution of slavery is something that would continue to haunt the foundation of the United States through its first three-quarter centuries. Right? So this place is founded on the principle that a democracy cannot survive without a robust, educated populace. Right? Jefferson argues that an educated population is the best defense against a decrepit government. Right? So these things are, in Jefferson's mind, inextricably linked. You have to, if you're going to have a robust democracy, you have to have an educated population. And he argues in 1779 for public education, which is a radical argument. In the late 18th century, public education, of course, is limited at that point to white males. Nonetheless, a commitment to public education was part of Jefferson's ideal, and he rec uh, recognized that it's just not possible to have public education, uh, it's not possible to have a democracy without a robust uh, public education system. So in the, um, starting the 17, sorry, in the, in the 18-teens, uh, he's arguing for the establishment of a new university, um, and that would eventually become the University of Virginia. Uh, his commitment uh, to the University of Virginia would really take shape from uh, 1817 really through 1826 uh, at the moment of his death. And that would be uh, the 10-year period where he is uh, investing in designing and building the University of Virginia. And that'll be our next, next conversation. Any questions about that content? All right, let's go talk about UVX. <laughs>